The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. Father, in this passage, you command us, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, with Christ's way of thinking about suffering. So, as we seek to understand and apply your words to us, would you please help us arm ourselves with Christ's mindset about suffering? We ask for Christ's sake, amen. First Peter 4, 1 through 6 is about a way that Christians may suffer. We might commonly think of, of suffering as tragic events, like you, you get in a car accident, or you break your arm, or you get cancer, or um, those sorts of, of, of tragedies. That is not the kind of suffering that Peter is talking about in this passage. In this passage, he's talking about when non-Christians malign you, insult you, mock you for your faith. That's the particular kind of suffering he's addressing. I regularly experienced that kind of suffering in junior high and high school. And I'll share this just as a way to encourage those of you who are young people and you're in, in perhaps a public school or maybe in other secular contexts or extracurricular activities. Um, so I, I attended a public school my entire life, uh, kindergarten up to college, except I was homeschooled in seventh grade. Uh, in grades six through 12, I was at a different school each year. So I was in a lot of different places. My, my dad was climbing the corporate ladder, so he moved a lot. And I was outspoken uh, as a Christian at each school. My, Christian, uh, my, my, my classmates and my teachers knew that I followed Christ. And I was zealous, probably too zealous sometimes. Um, I, I tried to winsomely stand for Christ in and out of the classroom. And God helped me to start evangelistic Bible studies at each of the high schools I was at. So that was one in a suburb of San Diego, two suburbs of Boston, and a suburb of Milwaukee. And in junior high and high school, many of my peers mocked me for not going along with them and their parties and drinking and immorality and foul language. I'm just trying to think of a few examples. Uh, I remember how defenseless I felt in sixth grade. So it was a middle school, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Sixth grade, um, remember the the running back on the football team with a bunch of his buddies flanking him, came up to me in between classes. I was getting books out of my locker, and he grabbed me from the back of the head and just slammed me into my locker and just taunted me. He was so mad at me because he was trying to get me to laugh at his jokes that were, that were just dirty. He tried to get me to look at pornography, and I wouldn't just go along with him, and he hated me for it. Uh, I remember how awkward I felt in grade 11 when my classmate Nicole asked me to go to prom with her. Now, she's, she was a nice girl, uh, but let's just say that Prom in that school wasn't a, a wholesome, formal ballroom dance. Let's put it that way. Um, so I, I think the, the characteristics in verse 3 describe that a little more accurately. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking party, lawless idolatry. So as a Christian, I just couldn't take part of that with a clear conscience. And man, did my classmates make fun of me for that. Uh, so in and out of the classroom, I, I just tried to stand for what the Bible teaches, basic stuff. Like I'd assume I would, I would uh, argue and believe that the Bible is completely true 
and everything it affirms, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that God designed sex for one man and one woman, the basic stuff, basic Christianity. And my peers would malign me, at least some of them would. And God just used hundreds of examples like that, uh, experiences like that in high school and junior high to help me mature as a Christ follower. I'm going to be uh, marking up the screen a little bit as we talk. Now, in 1 Peter 4.4, 4, uh, uh, Peter says, they're surprised, they're surprised when you don't join them. Later, not our passage today, but a future passage, Peter says, beloved, don't be surprised when this happens. So they're surprised when you don't follow them. We shouldn't be surprised that it's even happening. So this passage today is, uh, is a way to help us prepare for this kind of suffering that's inevitable. This kind of suffering is part of the Christian life, so expect it. Christianity in our fallen world has always been and will always be countercultural in various ways. In our culture right now, there's a growing trend of something called cancel culture. Have you heard that term? Cancel culture? So what that is, it's this popular practice of withdrawing support that is canceling public figures and companies when they, they do something or say something that people consider objectionable or offensive. Typically, it happens on social media with group shaming. Well, that sort of shaming can happen to non-famous individuals too, especially to Christians. I was trying to think, what are some ways in our culture right now where this could happen to one of you, a Christian who's following Christ faithfully. There are things that you believe and do that are offensive to much of our culture. Here's, here's a short list. It could be much longer. Uh, we believe that Jesus is God, the Son incarnate. We believe he's God. We believe Jesus is the only Savior, the only way to be saved from God's wrath. We believe that God designed sex only for one man and one woman in marriage and that any kind of sexual activity outside of that covenant relationship is sinful. We believe that God created humans as either biologically male or biologically female. So there's man and woman, boy and girl. We believe that God created humans in his image. So it's sinful to murder a fellow human being, no matter how small. That includes humans in the womb. God commands his people to be holy. If you've ever watched people join our church, we have this, this time up front where they affirm this. We engage to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger, to seek God's help in abstaining from all drugs, food, drink, and practices that bring unwarranted harm to the body or jeopardize our own or another's faith. That's serious. And then there's one other way I'll mention that Christianity is countercultural in our context is that Christianity is incompatible with a very popular worldview right now called critical theory. I'll just take a moment to explain this. So critical theory is very pervasive in our culture right now, and if you oppose it uh, as a Christian, don't be surprised when people will mock you, malign you, call you a hater, a bigot, oppressor. So here's what it is. It's a popular way of viewing all relationships through the lens of power. So this, these relationships include race, class, 
sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, physical ability, age, weight, and there's several other groups I'm not including there. Uh, and so basically there are two, bas two groups. You have those with power, they're the oppressors, and those without power, they are the oppressed. Here's, a, here's critical theory in a single table. This is a table from a book by New York Times bestselling author Robin DiAngelo. She's presenting critical theory as the truth. So in this column here is the, the oppressors, the, the dominant group, and over here you've got the minorities. So these are just some examples. So all white people are guilty of racism against peoples of color. All elite people are guilty of classism against the poor, working and middle class. All cis men, that means biological males who identify as men, all of them are guilty of sexism against women and others. All heterosexuals are guilty of heterosexism against gays and lesbians and others. All Christians are guilty of religious oppression against non-Christians, etc. You go through this and I'm thinking, goodness, I'm every one of these except elite class. Uh, <laughs> but on the other side, if, if you can be a person who's in multiple categories, uh, that's called an intersection of these minority uh, uh, identities, that's called intersectionality, and that makes your experience of, of oppression even more uh, exceptional and, 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 and gives you greater weight in, in such discussions. I mean, just this past week, I read a book, it's, it's brand new, just came out called Cynical Theories. So on the, on the cover it says critical, but it's crossed out, it says cynical theories. And the subtitle is, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. And it's actually by two people who are not Christians. I think they're both atheists. But they demonstrate how destructive critical theory is. And I just bring this up because more and more people in our culture right now are imbibing and embracing this worldview. And at its heart, critical theory opposes Christianity. And if you want to, I'm going to move on, but if you want to learn more about that particular theory, there's a fellow online named Neil Shenvi, S-H-E-N-V-I. His website, shenviapologetics.com. It's fantastic. He, he nails this. Now our text, 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6, is just a gift from God to us in our culture right now. What a gift this paragraph is. This is going to help us get ready for when non-Christians try to shame us for our Christian beliefs and behavior. So let's just read through it one more time and kind of do some, some preliminary tracing of the argument and then try, try to nail down the main argument here and how he unpacks it. So, since therefore, that word therefore is always important. I'll come back to that one. So I'm going to try to connect that in a moment to the previous paragraphs. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This second line is the main idea of the paragraph. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So he supports that in the first line with a reason, since Christ suffered in the flesh. And then in the third line, he gives another reason. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. For what purpose? so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but, in contrast, for the will of God. Then he explains that. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And he gives a vice list of six specific examples, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, with respect to those, those sins that you're no longer going along with, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And then what do they do? They malign you. But, in contrast, they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And then he, 
Peter explains that further. This is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So again, main idea, this second line, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's the main idea of the paragraph. And it's, it's Christ's way of thinking about suffering. This, just pause there and, and think about that metaphor. Arm yourselves with a way of thinking. Isn't that weird? Do we talk that way normally? Like when we say arm yourselves, we're typically thinking, you know, with a physical weapon to prepare for some kind of battle. You arm yourself physically. So a soldier arms himself to prepare for battle, whether offensively or defensively. Peter's saying arm yourselves spiritually with Christ's mindset about suffering. Arm yourselves spiritually. Prepare to suffer. So I'd like to preach to you on this topic. Arm yourselves with Christ's mindset about suffering. Arm yourselves with Christ's mindset about suffering. I'll proceed in five parts. I'll ask five questions about this passage, unpack them as we go. Question number one, why should you arm yourselves with Christ's mindset about suffering? Why? Very first sentence gives two reasons. So the main idea is arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Reason number one, Christ suffered in the flesh. Reason number two, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Let's look at those in succession. Reason number one, you should arm yourselves with the same way of thinking because Christ suffered in the flesh. We follow Christ. We're Christians, which means it shouldn't surprise us that we follow in his steps. Christ himself said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. And Christ suffered in the flesh. That word flesh, you could translate body as the NIV does. It just means he suffered in his body. And let's look at two passages in 1 Peter that help us better understand what Peter's thinking when he says that Christ suffered in the flesh and we should have that mindset. First passage is chapter 2, 21 to 23. He says, for this you've been called because Christ suffered for you. It's talking about suffering, leaving you an example. There we go. We're looking for how do we follow his example. Here's our example. We might follow in his steps. Okay. He committed no sin. So when he suffered, he didn't sin. So when we suffer, we should be committed to loving what God loves and hating what God hates. That's a way of following in Christ's steps in suffering. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. So when we suffer, we should not try to lie our way out of suffering. And then when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. So when we suffer, we shouldn't return evil for evil. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we suffer, we should trust God because we know that the judge of all the earth will do right. That's one passage. Remember that this first sentence we're looking at has a word therefore in it. So it actually connects most tightly to the previous paragraphs. So let's read those and then see if we can see how it fits with what comes before. So 1 Peter 3, we'll start in verse 13 and read all the way to the end of the chapter. Now, who is there to harm you? So he's talking about you experiencing persecution. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, here it is again, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So this paragraph sounds a lot like the one we just looked at in chapter four. 
And look what comes between those paragraphs. It starts with the word for. He's, again, he's, he's supporting it's better to suffer for doing good. Here's why. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, notice especially the first lines here, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is called penal substitution, a penalty substitution. He died, paid the penalty in our place to bring us to God. And his mindset in this suffering is that it would lead to glory, resurrection, ascension, his session at the right hand. Suffering leads to glory. That's the mindset that Christ has. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, you arm yourselves with that same mindset. That's the connection. So reason number one, you should arm yourselves with the same way of thinking because Christ suffered in the flesh. Reason number two, arm yourselves with the same way of, of thinking, not suffering, the same way of thinking about suffering because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What's those last words? Has ceased from sin? Does, is, is Peter saying that there are some Christians who don't sin anymore? Could it possibly mean that? So we believe that the Bible is one book from God. He breathed out all the words. He's completely true. He doesn't contradict himself. So sometimes it's helpful to consider other passages as we consider options for a, a trickier passage. And you think of, of clear passages like in 1 John 1, or John says, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Or James 3, we all stumble in many ways. We cannot interpret this to mean it's possible to be completely free from sin at this point in our lives prior to God glorifying us. So what does it mean? I think Peter means that believers no longer live for human passions, but for God's will they're decisively breaking from sin. The next phrase explains that in, in verse 2. So it, this is ceasing from sin as a decisive break with sin. No longer living for sinful human passions, but for God's will. That's, I think, what has ceased from sin means. In other words, a believer has ceased from participating in the sinful activities that characterize non-Christian Gentiles. Now that's actually one of the purposes that Jesus died. 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree for this purpose, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, what is this bit right here? Whoever has suffered in the flesh mean? It's possible, some commentators argue, that this means that Peter, Peter's saying, whoever's committed to suffering committed to the kind of suffering in 4.4 where, where non-Christians malign you. If you're committed to that, that means you've suffered in the flesh. And it, it is true that believers should be committed to endure any kind of suffering that, that, that non-Christians may inflict on them. That's true. That's part of what it means to follow Christ. I'm just not sure I can justify interpreting this line, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, 
to mean whoever has committed to suffering demonstrates that the power of sin is broken in their life. It seems more likely to me that whoever has suffered in the flesh is referring to someone who has died. Now, in the previous paragraph, Peter writes, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the righteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, here it is, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So when Christ suffered in the flesh, he died. So I think when he says whoever suffered in the flesh, he means whoever died. And the question is, well, in what sense did you die? And here's where 1 Peter 2.24 is so helpful. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin, to sin. It's that death. Whoever suffered in the flesh has died to sin. I think that's the connection. And that harmonizes with what Paul writes in Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. That's dying, crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we'd no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. I think that's the idea we're looking at here. Question two, for what purpose has a believer ceased from participating in the sins that characterize non-Christians? So we're looking at these last three lines. Look at the third line. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live. You could translate that in order that you might live, for the purpose that you might live. It's a purpose statement. In order that you might live for the rest of the time in the flesh. Okay, that, that just means the rest of your time in your earthly body. Uh, it's, it's the rest of your life in your body until you die. All of your life as a Christian, from the moment God converts you until your death. You'll, you'll live all that time, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, human passions, that has to be bad because he contrasts it with the will of God. So I take that to be sinful human passions in contrast to the will of God. So for what purpose has a believer ceased from participating in the sins that characterize non-Christians? For this purpose, in order to live the rest of your life, no longer for sinful passions, sinful human passions, but for God's will. Question three. Why is a believer committed to live no longer for sinful human passions, but for God's will? Well, next word is for. He is explaining verse two. Non-Christians live for sinful human passions. This word for indicates that what follows explains the previous statement, that purpose statement. And here it is. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, as the NIV says, You've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. That's reason enough to be committed to live no longer for sinful human passions, but for God's will. And then what Peter does is give this list of six specific sins. This is a vice list. So the first one, sensuality, that translates a word that means a lack of self-constraint that involves a person in conduct that violates all bounds of what's socially acceptable. It's self-abandonment, living licentiously. So some translations will, will, will render this carrying on an unrestrained behavior. That's the idea. Next word, passions. That translates a word that means a desire for something forbidden, inordinate. And so it's a craving or a lust. It's an evil desire. Third sin is drunkenness. That's to be affected by alcohol to the extent that you lose control over your faculties or behavior. Fourth word, orgies. 
that translates a word that means excessive feasting, carousing. Fifth is drinking parties. That translates a word that does not, ref- excuse me, that it does. It refers to a, uh, a party, a social gathering at which people serve wine. Now that doesn't mean that it's always inherently sinful to serve wine at a social gathering. Otherwise, Jesus would be guilty of that because he turned water into fine wine at a wedding. But in the context of a vice list like this, drinking parties is associated with immorality and drunkenness, carousing. It's those wild and frenzied drinking bouts. And the final term, lawless idolatry, translates a phrase that means to commit lawless deeds connected with polytheistic worship. And you, just, you look at that list and you think, not much, has, not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Uh, like today, across various cultures, people still sin together in groups at parties with alcohol and immoral sex. And a believer is committed to live no longer for such sinful human passions, but for God's will. Question four, how might non-Christians respond when a believer ceases from participating in sins that characterize non-Christians. So with respect to this, with respect to that list of sins he just mentioned that Christians are no longer engaging in, with respect to this, they, that is the the non-Christians, the Gentiles, they're surprised, that's her first response, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now remember when Peter writes this letter, his audience is, recent converts, first-generation Christians. It's not like they go back decades and decades, like my dad was a preacher and his dad was a preacher. No, like they're, they're first-generation Christians in a pagan context. So all their family, their friends, their coworkers, their neighbors, they knew them before they converted, and they're noticing this drastic change. And as a result, the first they're surprised, but, but, but their response is to malign them. They malign you. Other ways to translate that is they slander you. They heap abuse on you. They vilify you. They shame you. They insult you. They mock you. They cancel you. That's how they respond. They try to make you feel like you're on the wrong side of history. They try to pressure you to join them and to affirm their debauchery. Now, as I talk about persecution, I want to just make this real clear. I'm not trying to to put on the same plane, the same level, all persecution. Like, on one hand, you might have people getting uh, put in jail, tortured, executed. That's, not, that's not, as, uh, not the same thing as what we're talking about here. We're talking about people socially ostracizing you, people who are discriminating against you and, and mocking you. They're both persecution. They're just different kinds. They're, they're both bad. I'd actually rather have the mocking personally. Uh, but in, in, our, in our cultural context, which one are you more likely to experience? The mocking, the social ostracizing. That's, in our culture, that's, just, that's the way it is. I'm grateful that it's not worse. But, but Peter is, is categorizing that as a kind of persecution. So as I thought about this, I, I thought it would be helpful maybe to just share some examples from people who attend our North Campus uh, who might experience this in their, in their uh, secular context. So I, I, I asked some people if they'd be willing to share some stories, and I have three stories to share with you. Uh, first story is from Asher. He's a 13-year-old young man who attends the North Campus with his family. Here's what he says. Although I don't get maligned by others for not joining them in sin, I feel the pressure to join them so I don't look weird. 
I remember a couple years ago in sixth grade, there were kids at my lunch table who conversed about inappropriate things and used bad words. I think I was and am mostly silent during lunchtime conversations at school because people at public schools consistently engage each other in conversations that I don't find honoring to God. They would, and it's not just public schools, but but, uh, uh, they would make weird, perverted jokes sometimes and gossip about others. Just their doing that so unburdened by their consciences tempts you to be the same way. To let go of the conscience and join in sin for the pleasure of it can sound intriguing. And when you don't do it, kids will notice and think you're strange. Sometimes kids won't say something inappropriate around me, which is good. They call me pure-minded or something like that. But then that still makes you feel like an outcast. So overall, I feel like the way unbelievers have pressured me is by making me an outsider. And I've never felt like I totally fit in with the popular group at school. I'm always different. Here's another story from Hannah. She's a lady in my small group who works for a large nonprofit in the Twin Cities as an occupational therapist. She works with kids with disabilities, primarily autism and PTSD. Here's what she says. By God's grace, at this point in time, persecution would be in the form of being left out of social events or conversations. While there has been pressure, especially in the past six months, to celebrate LGBTQ plus and to promote a redefinition of gender and embrace recent Supreme Court decisions, I've not yet been asked to act contrary to my beliefs. I've also not been asked to celebrate or embrace these beliefs in large part due to coronavirus and working from home since March. Here are three examples. One, we received an email from the VP of my clinic following the Supreme Court's decision on sex identity and DACA and the ordinance not requiring admitting privileges to doctors performing abortions. In the email, the VP applauded the Supreme Court for affirming values of inclusion and respect that align with the core values and mission of our clinic. The email did not call us to action, but did say that additional steps for action and policy changes would be in the works. Second example, for our documentation, there's been pressure to consistently use gender neutral pronouns for our notes. This has not yet become a policy, but a strong suggestion. For my documentation, I typically will use client names and often still do use gender specific pronouns. Third example, our team lead and one of the speech therapists I work most closely with in addition to multiple others on our team, are in same-sex relationships and fully embrace gender fluidity. When we were still in clinic, I remember a conversation with my coworker who was so excited about a project he had been a part of that looked at the development of a different type of language and expression used by gay men. I didn't outright disagree with what he was saying, but I did ask lots of questions to try to understand rather than instantly affirm the results of the study. Most of these things have occurred while our team has been separated and doing telehealth. So I've not initiated email conversations to voice my concerns or disagreements, but in my silence and lack of affirmation, I've been left off of multiple boards and projects because I didn't redefine respect and inclusion to encompass gender identity. I was not welcome on the council team that works with uh, uh, supporting families from low socioeconomic status and or with significant cultural barriers that impact if they can receive services. Because I've not affirmed coworkers in their conversations and convictions regarding LGBTQ+, the persistent cultural presence of gender fluidity across time, pro-choice movements, and the rights of women to decide, I've been left off of the invitation for social gatherings, lunch conversations, and after-hour events. But from the logical flow of how quickly this organization has affirmed lawless idolatry, I anticipate this may change once we return to in-center services or shortly thereafter. That's from Hannah. Here's a third story from Mr. S, I'll call him. He's a North Campus member. He's a lawyer at a prestigious law firm headquartered in Minneapolis. The word drunkenness, he was reflecting on 1 Peter 4, 3. 
The word drunkenness certainly sticks out to me. I come from a family with a history of difficulty with alcohol. Accordingly, I have always steered far clear. As a lawyer at a larger firm, alcohol has been ever present at parties or gatherings from my first day clerking at the firm. As a young associate, I remember attending gatherings where the only beverage options were alcoholic. Over the years, I've been successful in reminding the firm to always include non-alcoholic choices. However, there are clients and lawyers at the firm to whom a night out on the town is a standard for client entertainment. Thankfully, I'm known as somewhat of a stick in the mud, so I'm not invited on most of these gatherings, but it has reduced my involvement in certain client matters and in getting assignments or being offered the opportunity to co-partner on files with some other lawyers. Also, my firm actively supports LGBTQ lifestyles. I'm not in firm management and thus have not had to wrestle with the appropriate policies. While my views are known, as well as my affiliation with Bethlehem, I've always made it my goal to engage personally with individuals struggling with this particular sin, which has actually led to very encouraging conversations at work over the years with various individuals, including the ability to share what our church believes. I also believe in treating all individuals with compassion and concern, and I'm willing to work with anyone regardless of their orientation. This has not been the challenge to date for me that it may be for some in other work environments. I've not been made to sign pledges, donate money, or participate in marches for topics I don't agree with. I thought that was helpful just to hear from, from different people who attend here. That, so thank you to Asher and Hannah and Mr. S for, for sharing those stories. I told you I'd share three. I have a bonus story for you. Uh, it's not someone who's part of our church. His name is Jonathan Isaac. Jonathan Isaac is an unusual 22-year-old. He's African-American, 6 feet, 11 inches tall, and he plays in the NBA, the National Basketball Association. For the past six weeks, I don't know if you guys follow sports at all, any of you, but you know that the NBA has been playing its games in the Orlando bubble. It's, so it's uh, at the Disney complex in Orlando, Florida, so that they're not traveling all over the country and getting or spreading coronavirus. And when, they, when the, their season restarted at the beginning of last month, uh, something happened that lots of people caught on social media and, and these pictures went viral. Here's what it was. Uh, almost everyone was wearing a t-shirt that says Black Lives Matter. It's, it, those words are on the, the basketball floor, the coaches, players, and then, and then they're all kneeling during the national anthem. And this one guy, Jonathan Isaac, the only NBA player of all the teams to do this, did not wear a t-shirt with those words, and he was standing. Now, he happens to be an outspoken Christian. He's an ordained, just this year became an ordained minister. And he, he was asked after the game, uh, um, I, no, Jonathan Isaac, do you believe that black lives matter? Don't you believe that? And the way he, what he did took a lot of courage. How he responded, it was winsome. Here's what he said. He said, a lot went into my decision. Kneeling or wearing a black lives matter t-shirt don't go hand in hand with supporting black lives. I do believe that black lives matter, but I just felt like it was a decision I had to make and I didn't feel like putting that shirt on and kneeling went hand in hand with supporting black lives. And then he went on to explain that the gospel of Jesus is the only thing that can help people get through what he calls all the things in our world that are messed up. I think when you look around, racism isn't the only thing that afflicts our society, that plagues our nation, that plagues our world. I feel like coming together on that message that we want to get past not only racism, but everything that plagues us as a society. And I felt like the answer to it is the gospel. I feel like the answer to it is the gospel. So he, of course he affirms the sentence, black lives matter. Uh, he's a Christian and he's black, uh, he, uh, that, which should be irrelevant, but he, he affirms that, that, that black lives matter. But uh, while, while some Christians thoughtfully use the phrase Black Lives Matter, that is the case, for, for Isaac and, and many Christians in our cultural context, and I include myself in that group, uh, they can't use the phrase Black Lives Matter 
at this point in our cultural context because if you do it in an unqualified way, it could come across as being inseparably attached to an organization with that name. And the organization itself, I would say, is evil. Uh, that organization is a movement and agenda that's against the gospel, against the family, against the way God created men and women to flourish. So I'd rather say something like black lives count or black lives are valuable because they're made in God's image. My point is with Isaac is, uh, Jonathan Isaac, the, the, the social pressure to conform to the organization Black Lives Matter right now in our culture is like a tidal wave. It's affecting not just individuals, but, but whole corporations. And I just admire his courage as a brother not to wear a t-shirt like that. And can you guess how people responded on social media to him? Just guess. Outrage, ridicule, shaming, maligning, canceled by cancel culture. Two days later in a basketball game, he had a terrible accident on the court. He, he broke his, uh, his ACL, a torn tore, not broke. I just looked at Kurt and he's like, no, you don't break ACLs. <laughs> he tore his ACL. Uh, he, so he left the court in a wheelchair. And the, the responses on social media were just vindictive. They were piling on with vitriol. They called it karma. Uh, they were rejoicing he got injured, basically saying it serves that Christian bigot right. Now that's just an example, another example, of non-Christians maligning a Christian. So question four, how might non-Christians respond when a believer ceases from participating in sins that characterize non-Christians? They malign you. Question five, how does looking at the bigger picture motivate believers about suffering? Notice our first word here is but. This is in, it's a hinge word. It's a huge contrast. They malign you, but... They will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Whoa. That's perspective. That is perspective. God will judge those who malign his people. So when you look at the bigger picture, how does that motivate you about suffering? Unless non-Christians repent and trust Christ, God will righteously judge them. And that encourages and exhorts us to persevere, to endure Suffering now in light of the future. Endure suffering by looking at the bigger picture. Sinners will give an account to God, the righteous judge. And then this, this final sentence starts with the word for that's indicating that it further explains the previous line. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And everyone in here is thinking, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, that, that is a challenging sentence to, to understand. Well, you start with the words, this is why. That could be pointing back or it actually could be pointing forward. So I, I think it's pointing forward. So this is why the gospel is preached, namely that. Okay, so that's, that's one helpful way to start uh, approaching the sentence. But still, uh, it's, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. What is that talking about? So there are at least three views on this. Now, one view is that the gospel is preached to unbelievers after they physically died, and specifically to unbelievers. A second is that the gospel is preached to people who were spiritually dead. And the third view is that the gospel is preached to people who are now physically dead. So let me briefly walk through those and uh, explain what I think Peter's trying to, to communicate here. So first view, the gospel is preached to unbelievers after they physically died. 
Some connect this to 319 in the previous paragraph where Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And I'm going to give you four. There are others, but I'll give you four reasons why I think this one doesn't work, this view doesn't work. First, uh, 319 doesn't refer to Christ preaching the gospel to unbelievers. I think it most likely refers to Christ proclaiming that at the cross he triumphed over Satan and demons. Second reason, the, in the, the words the gospel was preached, that translates a single Greek word that just means he or it was preached as good news, was proclaimed as good news. It doesn't tell you who's doing the proclaiming. So we shouldn't assume that it's Christ. In fact, a more natural way to read this is that humans proclaimed Christ as good news. Third reason, and this is the most compelling one, is that this view assumes it's possible for dead people to have a second chance to hear and respond to the gospel. But that contradicts other scripture, like Hebrews 9, which says it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And further, this view assumes that all people will ultimately be saved. Because you see the end of the, of, the, of the last sentence, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So if this view would assume that all people will eventually live in the spirit the way God does. That's a view called universalism. And, and, and that contradicts other scripture, uh, including scripture in First Peter. Uh, the Bible teaches that some people will experience eternal conscious punishment in hell. And the fourth reason this first view doesn't work is it doesn't fit with the literary context of First Peter. Read First Peter over and over and over again, and what's it, what's it saying? He's repeatedly exhorting Christians to stand firm in God's grace, to persevere as they look forward to the future reward of eternal life. And those exhortations are hollow if everyone's going to get that anyway. So view one, no good. View two, the gospel is preached to people who were spiritually dead. Like, like in the Ephesians 2 sense, people are spiritually dead and then they become spiritually alive. Well, again, just look at the sentence again. Sorry, this is a mess now. Uh, who, uh, they'll give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. Now, you see dead's on there twice, same group of people. But the first time, he's contrasting living and dead. It's very clearly here, it's people who are physically alive and people who are physically dead. So for this next dead to me, spiritually dead, he'd have to give us a contextual indicator that he's changing what he means when he says dead, and he doesn't do that. So second view, doesn't work. Let's try a third view. The gospel is preached to people who are now physically dead. So the idea is some of those people became believers and then they died. So when you talk about that group, now they're physically dead. The gospel is preached to them. I think this one works. So here, here's how it would work. You add the word now to clarify. The gospel is preached even to those who are, whoop, who are now dead. Right there, add the word now. Now that word now is not in the Greek text, so it's an interpretational move. But several, you might have a translation that, that says the word now in it. Uh, I noticed that the, the NIV, the CSB, the Net Bible, and the NLT all add the word now. And I think that's good. It's clarifying, helpfully, what Peter means. It clarifies that Peter's referring to people whose bodies are currently dead. Their bodies used to be alive, and when those believers were alive, they suffered. In Peter's day, non-Christian Gentiles might argue something like this. Well, hey, Christians still die like everyone else, so what good is your religion? You still die. 
What benefit is there to becoming a Christian if, if Christians die like everyone else? But that's not the whole story. Christians who die will live the way God does. The last line, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Christians will live the way God does by the power of God's spirit when God resurrects their body. You notice that the word spirit here is lowercase. It translates the word and it could be uppercase or lowercase. It's a judgment call based on context. I prefer uppercase um, because God will give us a resurrection life by means of his spirit. So but the big picture here is third view is, is, uh, is the one that makes the most sense here, but the exhortation at the end of our passage is endure suffering in verse four, that, that suffering, by looking at the bigger picture. God will righteously judge believers. So now let's just take one more pass through the passage and then we'll transition and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So main idea, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Why? That was our first question, two reasons. Since Christ suffered in the flesh and since whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And what's the purpose for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? Here it is, for this purpose, so that you would live for the rest of your, your life, no longer for sinful human passions, but for God's will. Third question, why is a believer committed to no longer live for sinful human passions but for God's will? Well, for this reason, because uh, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. So question four, how might non-Christians respond when a believer ceases from participating in sins that characterize non-Christians? They're surprised and they malign you. And then finally, how does looking at the bigger picture motivate believers about suffering? Well, unless non-Christians repent and trust Christ, God will righteously judge them. And that encourages and exhorts us to persevere, to endure suffering now in light of the future. So church, let's resolve to follow God's words to us in this passage. Let's arm ourselves with Christ's mindset about suffering because Christ suffered in the flesh. And now we get to Exult in Christ by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 720- 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.